What's up, gentlemen? This is Rising Phoenix Podcast, the podcast about how to rise up after your divorce. I'm your host, Michael Rhodes. Let's get into it. Joining me today is Mr. Andrew Keith Walker. Andrew, let's just dive right into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm uh, a writer and a podcaster, and I, I worked as a journalist. Originally, uh, I was in technology and uh, had a background in a number of tech startups and sort of got involved really from, from sort of day one on the internet, at least when it sort of broke in the UK, so sort of mid to late 90s. And I'd always worked in tech for a long time. And eventually, you know, even though I, I did politics at university, and it's weird because I wound up with a tech startup called Tweetminster and another one called Tweet Congress, uh, which was our sort of US partner. And we tracked politicians on Twitter. So somehow the tech and the politics sort of came together. And, and also I had written a little bit in newspapers. I used to work at a newspaper. And then we started writing articles about politicians on Twitter and trending stories and that. So I sort of found myself, all roads seemed to be dragging me back towards uh, journalism and that kind of thing. Nice. So I wrote about technology and uh, that kind of stuff and the impact of technology on our daily lives for a bit for various newspapers and eventually wound up podcasting like you. So uh, I podcast about obviously different things, usually to do with finance, financial technology. I'm just about to launch a new show about NFTs and the metaverse. But in, in between all of that, I have worked fairly consistently, uh, sometimes as a journalist, sometimes as a ghostwriter. Uh, and it is here that, you know, obviously I never expected to be interviewed because when you're a ghostwriter, the whole point of it is no one knows who you are. Right. So this is this has come as a, you know, a bit of a surprise to be interviewed as a ghostwriter. But obviously, as we, we talk about it, the nature of the project meant that someone had to be the voice for the, the actual author of the book. Yeah. So let's dive into that. Um, let's talk about the book. Uh, and that's why you're on. Uh, it, it It's about parental alienation. Um, it's it's something I, in my sphere and space, hear a lot about. Fortunately, knock on wood, if that is a thing, uh, I need to knock on it a lot. Um, I don't deal with that. But but let's so let's talk about uh, how, how what what is the book and how did you become involved? Good question. Well, I mean, the book is called The Invisible Parent, which seems like the best title we could come up with. Um, to to try and explain the experience of parental alienation simply, because it is quite literally about one parent quite you know becoming invisible in the lives of his children. And I mean, interestingly, it's something I knew nothing about. I was, and I think probably like most people, unless you've been through this situation or been through a, a difficult custody dispute, right. most people don't imagine just how tough it can be and the massive impact that, that this kind of emotional trauma can have on someone. Yeah. So for me, it was, uh, it came as, as quite a surprise. I mean, the, the author originally wanted to write an autobiography because mm. he's had a very interesting uh, sort of life journey, uh, sort of rags to riches, you might say, and has, uh, you know, worked at the very highest levels globally with, you know, and been, been hugely successful himself. Right. And we started off talking about his life's journey. But what I noticed in the early stages of this project was one question, one topic kept coming up, and that was his children, how the fact he hadn't seen them. And as we talked about it, uh, it, it became very clear that this was something that was dominating his thoughts 
and was was hugely affecting his emotional life. You know, he continues to be hugely successful uh, in in the world of business uh, for sure, and is is there's no issues there. Mm. But in terms of how he is as a person, I think. You know, he'd clearly been through something deeply traumatic. And as we wrote about it, we realised that actually there wasn't just this story there, but I think why it was sticking so much in his thoughts is because he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to try and reach out and tell his story to other parents who might be going through something similar. And that, of course, is why the book is anonymous. And that's the elephant in the room which is under UK law uh, and I think under many legal systems around the world, there's a gag act on what goes on in court, uh, especially in hearings to do with divorce and what have you. It's not like it's a criminal case. It's not like something it's reported on. Um, so, all, And that means that the stories and the abuses that go on internally within the family courts never really get spoken about. There's a huge pressure to reform it, but people don't really understand why and what those pressures are. And he wanted to get his story out there to try and help people. And that's why it has to be an anonymous book, because it breaks all those uh, privacy laws. Uh, in in the course of uh, writing it or, or working on writing it, at what point did you, it was decided that uh, pretty early on that he would be anonymous and that your name would be attached? Like at what point, uh, in the process of that occur? Well, that's, <laughs> I'm laughing because no, it, it actually happened quite late in the process. We finished the first draft and the first draft, we sort of sat down and read it. And within a very short period of time, we looked at each other and said, look, if, if, if you publish this, then it's going to be the mother of all lawsuits, you know? And the problem with that is he's a, a very wealthy individual and he said i'm fine i'll fight the mother of all lawsuits uh which is very much his view but the thing is my take and you know the the legal team's take was yeah but it'll it'll never it'll just never be published it'll get bogged down Mm. no publisher will touch it with a 10-foot pole and it'll just it'll never get out there so we needed to come up with another way to tell the story and that's where we hit on the idea of making it anonymous which is a tradition it's a it's a you know tradition in writing across the world the anonymous books have emerged over time to get around legal issues i think most recently in the uk and the one which sort of signaled to us it was doable was a book called the secret barrister where a barrister talked about the internal workings of the the legal system and how it's it's failing certain groups within society within criminal law and so Mm -hmm. we we thought well this this clearly can be done and there's a precedent for doing it that's that's why we went that way all right, so let's dive into the system then. That's uh, a good segue. Um, uh, my, my, in my experience, well, I don't have experience. So I, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm skeptical parental alienation because that's not the case. I guess what I am, I, I, I'm not skeptical that, that people do it. Um, but what does, what I am a bit skeptical about, I suppose, or at least, I don't know if skeptic's the right word. It's probably too strong, but <clears throat> I'm curious, um, is the system would allow it. Like eventually I would think the chickens would come home to roost, so to speak. Like eventually these people would be taken to task for their misdeeds of influencing these children. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, And so I want to start talking about this from the standpoint of, was it more her, the ex, 
or was it the system that caused all of this man's issues? Or was it both? I think that's that's an absolutely I think that's it. That that is the central sort of uh pickle uh and the whole you know uh argument because which is it? And and I think the answer is, as often in these cases, both. Yeah. Um, I think the system facilitates uh, parental alienation in certain ways. You know, I, I think to sort of take a step back and sort of just just rewind a little on that argument. Sure. Um, I've never experienced anything like this. I'm happily married. I've got two kids. I had no idea how bad things could get. And coming at it from a journalist background, I said to the author, look, we can't put anything in here that we don't, we can't corroborate with some kind of evidence. So he gave me all his papers, all his email correspondence over the sort of the three, four year period that this book covers. And I just basically sat in the room with sort of an archive, stacks and stacks of papers and went through everything and tried to find only items where we could find two pieces of evidence that could back it up. So if someone had said something, was there a witness, was there a piece of legal paper to back it up, and some argument that had been made by solicitors or by lawyers in court. So we went through this process to try and get a handle on how this can happen, and it became very, very wife. Um, she didn't have to do anything at all. The system will take care of everything for you by virtue of the fact that your children are not children forever. Right? This isn't like a legal dispute over a contract where the contract doesn't age. Mm. You know, This is a situation where the children come into this process legally when they're aged 11, 12, and you know the clock is ticking. By the time they reach sixteen, it's done because they can have their own representation. They can, you know, in fact, you can have your own representation earlier. They get it at fourteen in this case. Um, and once you've got your own representation and the way the courts run, everything takes so long that by the time a resolution could be found, you are getting to the stage where they're not children anymore. And the the thing you're fighting to try and get, which is a relationship during childhood, has gone. That's lost. So the, the system, by virtue of the fact it works very slowly, works in favor of the alienator because, you know, it's almost impossible to prove. The system also fails on behalf of the person who's being alienated in one really critical way. Alienated parents do not come across well. You know, um, they are not nice, reasonable people making nice, reasonable arguments. And I think this is one of the hardest things. All right. Imagine you've lost your kids and no one will listen to you, right? You're desperate. You are angry. You are frustrated. And you're trying every possible way you can think of and the way your lawyers can think of to try and reverse the situation. Now, all the alienator has to do is say, hey, listen, I'm just supporting my kids. And that was the, the argument the mother makes all the way through. I'm not going to force my kids to see their dad. That was it. That's all she ever really said. It's their wishes. I'm not going to force them to see their dad. Um, Now, when the father then says, but it's bad for kids not to see their parents, it's bad for them to, you know, be cut off and choose never to, how can they choose never to see me again? They're 12 years old, you know. Um, The answer to that is, well, I'm not going to force them. I'm not going to force them. So you don't have to do anything. And of course, as a result, the mother seems like a very reasonable, supportive person. Uh, Although she is referred to in a number of court reports as being passive, um, 
and uh, omit, uh, causing problems through omission rather than through commission. So a number of uh, a court-appointed psychiatrists, court-appointed uh, uh, therapist, and um, a mutually agreed uh, child counselling charity all report that the wife is will not do anything to help, that, that she doesn't want the children to have a relationship with the father, and she's not going to force them to have one. They all point this out and say that without her support, they can never rebuild this relationship. Family therapy can never work. Nothing can ever work. So, I mean, it's all there in paper. Yeah. But as she says, I'm just supporting my kids. Meanwhile, the dad comes across as a caged animal who is, you know, clawing at the bars and getting increasingly desperate over a four-year process. And by the end of it, it's, it's quite apparent because he ends up in the very final instance getting rid of his lawyer and standing there himself representing himself and saying, look, this is me, no lawyers, no tricks, please let me see my kids. Yeah. And the answer is no, uh, for, for trivial reasons, which are caught up in legal technicalities and the opinion of the judge who has come out of retirement to meet the backlog because the courts are so stressed, it's taken nearly four years for this thing to get resolved. So in answer to that question, the system isn't fit for purpose and parental alienation isn't, un isn't widely understood enough for people to realise how the uh, often someone will appear to be the very worst sort of candidate in the situation. Here's the anxious, angry person. Of course, the kids don't want to see them. Right. But if th that is a reflection of the fact that it's someone who's, who's lost their children and is desperate and, and, and no one will support them. Yeah. And that, that I want to, I want to get to that point. I want to talk about that point of um, what is parental alienation, because that's something he does bring up in the book. And I, and I think it's an excellent point. Um, as far as I can tell, there isn't really defined anywhere, at least in the courts, right? Um, so what, in your view, after doing this and in his view, um, what is that definition? What is parental alienation? And how, and more importantly, how do you know when it's occurring? Because I think at this point, it's sort of like, I forget what Senator said it in the 80s, I think, when, when he was asked about obscenity he's like i don't know what it, how to define it but i know it when i see it but that doesn't really fucking help in this regard right because it's left to interpretation so in your view after doing this and his view perhaps um uh, what what is it how do you define it and how do you recognize it when it's occurring well yeah and that's a very good question because the author in this he didn't recognize it um he didn't realize what was happening um for some time it was uh, I, I guess if we go through the sort of timeline of events for him and the, the problem here, and in fact, the broader problem, which is parental alienation has, has uh, in recent years, it's suffered very much from major setbacks because there is this issue that it has been used as an argument by uh, predominantly fathers who are abusive and have been abusive uh, in their relationships. And when they aren't awarded uh, custody or access because of the the behavior they will say oh, i'm being alienated and have forced further investigations and forced visits with children while that issue is being resolved and in a couple of uh, high profile and very tragic cases have actually killed children uh, as a result of this so there have been abuses of the system by abusers who have used parental alienation as an argument and also a, a large body of the research, well, I say research, um, you know, a large body of sort of intervention was taking place, uh, was, was based on the 
uh, research of a, a Dr. Richard Gardner, who's now dead, uh, who, you know, has been, he's very, he's a controversial figure in terms of opinions. He, he coined the phrase parental alienation syndrome. It hadn't gone through the right kind of peer review process to be labeled as a syndrome. Uh, there are various sort of issues to do with its application and opinions, et cetera, and, and where it's legally, where it's used as a, an argument and, and where it's not. It's not admissible. It's in the, the UK, there's no recognition of parental alienation syndrome or Gardner's work. Um, so there's a lot, there's a messy background in terms of research and what have you. There has been a lot of research in, into the impact of losing uh, parents Early on, there was a UCL study. Um, we we based a lot of our analysis on this of nineteen thousand children that was taken over thirteen years of an early departure of one of the parents as a child, and the the effects that has on on later life outcomes and behaviours. And all of those, incidentally, came true for the children in in this story, uh, in terms of withdrawal, dysphoria, uh, self harm, uh, sexual relationship problems. Uh, sexual behaviours that were, you know, uh, 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 weren't right for uh, 11, 12-year-olds. So, you know, there are these issues that come out from it, but there is no clearly defined scale, and no one has the same scale. It's recognised by the UK Child um, uh, uh, Services, uh, CAFCAS, the the sort of court-appointed social workers for children. It's recognised by them. They have their own framework for assessment. Mm -hmm. You will find, I mean, in this case, one of the mutually agreed therapists who was going to start family therapy was actually using Richard Gardner's scale to assess parental alienation. Um, then the court-appointed psychiatrist who did, you know, three reports during the course of this long legal battle, he uh, didn't use that scale at all. He... Um, you know, used his own scale for measuring alienation, which he always refers to very carefully in the legal wording as in the plain English term of the word, which means to turn someone against someone else through influencing them. So, it, I mean, it, it means the same thing as parental alienation in, when right. it's used as the terminology. But again, there are lots of little, different legal get-outs that apply. So there's no clear... Um, assessment framework for it. Now, you compare that with other forms of domestic abuse. If you say I've been physically abused, there is a fairly standardized approach for, for that to be measured. Right. Um, and we will see increasingly in cases, say, of forced marriage or coercion in the home, uh, you know, you will find there's much closer alignment with courts or, or with uh, support charities in terms of how they want to try and define and analyze this. Sure. With parental alienation, there isn't. So it very much falls through the cracks. And in fact, if you allege it, sadly, if you say, well, I believe I'm being alienated, um, it tends to go against you because people will look and say, okay, fine, you sound like one of those, you know, angry, misogynist, abusing, you know, partners. So you need to take a step back and look at it. Now, this is really what really caught my attention because when he first mentioned it to me, I did obviously research uh, into the topic and I sort of uncovered it. It's got this checkered history. There's this complexity. There's a lot of issues around it. There's a, there are cases where people have insisted on 50-50 custody, and children have died as a result because they've been put with an abusive parent or a negligent parent. I mean, you know, the, this is a very, very troubling area. And yet here is a doting father who is rich. Let's just call a spade a spade. You know, he is rich here. There's no um, uh, problems with him providing for his kids. He's always provided. He paid all their legal fees. He paid all his ex-wife's legal fees completely throughout the entire thing. 
Interestingly, she wanted the fees to get paid out of the Children's Trust Fund. Before he offered it, she she said, well, she wasn't going to pay it out of her own money. She paid it out of the Children's Trust Fund. <laughs> he said, no way, I'll pay it. <laughs> so this is this is the kind of guy we're talking about here. Yeah, right? yeah, He's yeah. not He is not the kind of person. Yeah. In fact, one of the arguments that took place during this was a financial argument where um, an asset of his, which had been worthless due to the financial crash, came back to maturity. Um, his ex-wife demanded that it was paid over to her, and he said he'd pay it into the Children's Trust Fund, and she took him to court over that to say, no, she wanted the money herself. And it was, you know, half a million dollars. But, now, how, you know, nevertheless, how is, how is it that, went into her pocket, not how, the kids. How is that kind of shit not a red flag to the system? Like, or, well, or, or, or does it not make it to the system? Like, Because I would be like, hey, uh, excuse me, this this woman doesn't, she she doesn't want my kids to have money. She she wants their legal fees to be paid by. Like all these things seem like are they are? Can you bring yeah. that up? Did that come up? Well, yes. Red flags do not get noticed by the family court because in this case, it's a four year case. Six different judges mm. hear different parts of the hearing over four years. Some of those judges are district court judges. In the UK, you've got you know the county court judges. You have the full time judges, the salaried judges. And then you've got the district court judges who are paid on a case-by-case basis and they handle sort of overspill and, and you know, uh, sort of backlog. Gotcha. So much so that in the final case, which ruled it to an end, the judge had come out of retirement to hear the case and was clearly out of touch, referred to the author as a stockbroker when, you know, he, he's not a stockbroker in any way, shape or form. Where he got that from, it doesn't know. He says, well, he's a stockbroker. He does something in business. And it, he'd obviously skim read the notes and, you know, come, wanted to get it over before lunch so, you know, he could get back to playing golf, wherever, wherever it was. And it was, it was tragic, tragic lack of attention. But the, the problem is, of course, these red flags don't get flagged up. The children, for example, um, in a number of their assessments, one of the reasons they say they don't want to see their dad is because he's mean and he's, you know, what hasn't paid his fair share and the mother is always struggling for money. Now, to put that in perspective, the mother walked out of court with about $15 million in settlement. Uh, she lived in a house uh, with seven bedrooms in a very sought-after uh, upper-class uh, area, um, which is you know dominated by you know bankers and politicians and people like that. We're, we're not talking about someone who was struggling to pay the bills here. Um, similarly, the children have a trust fund set up, you know, millions of dollars. They go to a school that costs, you know, $100,000 a year uh, to attend. They have tutors. They have everything. He flies them on his private jet to California to go on holidays on the yacht, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is the, 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 the lifestyle we're talking about. And this is why it really attracted me, because we're not talking about someone who's, a, you know, a deadbeat or an alcoholic or down their luck or trying to come back from addiction. Uh, we're not talking about someone who's got ghosts, you know, in their clo- or skeletons in their closet. We're talking about someone here who, you know, one of the complaints the children made against him, apparently, in their first deposition was, you know, they wanted to go to Disneyland and instead, you know, he uh, took them on holiday uh, skiing with royalty kind of thing, you know. 
they wanted to go to a West End show and instead, you know, he flew them to Miami, you know, in his private jet. And, you know, he was on the phone all the time right. and they didn't, they, you know, they were bored. You know, that that was the sort of arguments they were making. So this is a, a very privileged set we're talking about here. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's interesting yeah. because the mum isn't, you know, someone who's struggling for money and, you know, in poverty. Because often, see, now this is, this is one of the many narratives, though, that lands in the core is that men abuse their ex-wives by withholding payment, by withholding right. maintenance, yeah. and ex-wives abuse their ex-husbands uh, by withholding access to children. Yeah. And this is a trope which is often referred to as characterizing the opinions of court cases. So parental alienation plays into that because if you haven't paid your maintenance and you know a, a mother who's desperate for cash is saying, well, I'm going to withhold access to the kids, Fathers can say, oh, look, they're, they're turning the kids against me, and, and vice versa. If, you know, the father isn't paying the bills, mothers can say, look, he's not paying maintenance. I'm struggling for money. He won't look after his kids. Why should he get to come every other weekend and take them out to the zoo and, you know, win all the plaudits when I'm the one doing all the hard work in the week, right? So right. we know there are these difficult problems, yeah. and the courts aren't geared to deal with it, but it means when you say, hey, I'm being uh, alienated here, you know, it's a story that the people in the court have heard a million times before, but never from you. They don't know you. They don't know you, your background, the history. Right. And so here's, here, this is a very unusual case where it's someone who most people would run out of money by the time yeah. this guy got to the end of his court case. They'd have given up already. Yeah. He saw it right the way through and he paid everyone's fees. And by doing that, exposed end to end the failings of the whole process, which is, yeah. is why he wants to get his story out there. Uh, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, and I think it's it's a key point in the uh, in that in that trope, right? That you talked about um, because unfortunately there there are uh, uh, men that are shitty, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean shitty as in they're not paying their child support. Um, shitty as in they've murdered their children or their exes or their wives or whatever, and so. I think, and he points this out in the book, it's sort of um, the, the the yardstick that men are measured by is is maybe isn't fair, but I struggle with that. I'm not, I'm not saying the man is wrong. Uh, I'm not saying the system's right either, but because there is, um, because there has been a loss of life and, and real abuse, I, I don't know the answer to, to the question of, well, there's a couple things there. One, is there a bias against men? I think that's the first question. And two, um, if there is, what do we do? Is it justified? Like, I, I don't, it's, it's so fucking complex. Like you, you don't want to aid someone in abusing. Um, but how does that, how do you, how do you measure a man? I got, there's so many fucking questions here. How do you measure a man fairly knowing that, men have done this. And again, I don't, I don't know what's fair here. I don't know what's right, but I do know that some men are fucking shitty. And, um, that is unfortunately a, a, a part of the collective conscience of the legal system of all of us. Right. Um, so how, how do we, how does yeah. he think that needs to be addressed? Well, it's an interesting one because he's he would be the first person to agree and say, look, yeah, that this is a difficult one. This is a thorny one. But what he would also say is this, is that, you know, his is a bias there. And I think there is bias inherent in the system was his first barrister 
in the first court case when it when he first realized he he had to take things to family court mm. quite a high level to try and restart contact with his children his first barrister who was a woman a very experienced family court barrister um said to him okay fine you're you're a rich guy okay mm. so this means that you know it's half time you're two nil down and you you haven't got a goalie in the goal. She used this sort of football analogy, but she said, you know, you're already halfway to losing by virtue of the fact that no one is, you know, this was at a time, you know, we'd just been through the financial crash. So rich people, you know, uh, there's Occupy protests going on outside the court, right? So yeah, you, you, you turn up in, you know, the limo and, you know, people are chucking stuff at you. Okay. So, you know, it was a bad time. He obviously appears in court and you know the there is a he he assumes there's going to be a fact finding process, but his lawyer said no, don't go for a fact finding process. If you go for fact finding, it'll be another six months before you're back here again, and you won't find any facts because this isn't a fact finding kind of situation. Mm. It's he should he he said she said. So forget about that. We want to move as quickly as possible to reestablishing contact in some way because the longer you have no contact, the harder it is to reestablish it. And what most lawyers will tell you, I interviewed, I spent about three hours interviewing family lawyers uh, um, as I went through this and checking my own thoughts and just getting them to explain processes to me and what have you. And they said the same thing, is that basically when you enter that court, you are pretty much stuck like a fly in amber. You will be stuck forever with the situation where you walk in through those doors. The best thing you can do is come to any kind of amicable solution and get out of there with some kind of contact reestablished. Because what will happen eventually is the courts will just say, right, the kids have had enough. We're going to freeze things where they are. And if they freeze things where they are and you're not speaking, then you may never get to speak to them again. And that's that's just the way the system tends to work. Um, Because, of course, the court process weighs heavily on children and the court is constantly assessing and social workers are constantly assessing, is this too much for the kids to bear? If it is, they just put a stop to it regardless of whether or not there are bigger outcomes to come from this, you know, which, which happen when you don't see both parents. It's, it's recognized in UK law and US law and statutes that it's the welfare, it's for the, the advancement of a child's welfare to have a relationship with both parents. So you have this situation where, you know, he's gone into court and his lawyer has told him basically, you know, just take what you can get here. And he, he, that's what he did. He took what he could get, which was, okay, fine. Could they mutually agree to see some kind of therapist and try and restart it? And he agreed to this. The problems of parental alienation started to emerge to him there because he assumed he'd get to see his kids. Right? Right. Uh, he assumed there'd be some kind of assessment where they, uh, you know, the court would appoint an expert to assess him with his children. Yeah. Uh, but there wasn't. There was none of that. Instead... His lawyer said, okay, we, we found someone who's a therapist who can deal with situations like this. His wife's lawyers agreed that would be okay and they could they could do it. And they have another hearing. And this seemed like an amicable outcome, right? So um, they start with this uh, therapist. The therapist does an assessment, which is the first one, where she actually uses the Gardner scale and says, well, look, there's, there's some kind of alienation going on here. It's not classic case, but there's definitely, it's a hybrid case. The, the mother is very passive and, and is not going to support the children seeing him. The therapist asked him to record a video message for them. He recorded a video message for them and uh, they refused to watch it. 
And the therapist said, well, your children refuse to even look at, look at the video message you sent. Um, he tried to write to them. They wouldn't look at anything he'd sent. They, they, they wanted nothing to do with him, which is she, the therapist herself admits was odd. She said, this is odd. I think that there's some elements of alienation going on here. The mother would not force the children to look at a video message from him. They, she wouldn't force the children to send him a message or anything else. It was, no, I'm not going to force them to do anything they don't want to do. These two uh, uh, kids age 12, 11 and 12. So here's a here's a, a one basic says to the other legal team, okay, fine, this therapy is from now, we might be able to start you coming for sessions. He said in four years, they're going to be 16, it's nuts, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So then he goes back to court and says, no, I want an actual assessment of what's going on here, a proper assessment, I want a psychiatrist to see my kids and assess them. Um, so, you know, uh, that's when, of course, things are ramping up and uh, it becomes, well, hang on a second. He's the aggressive one here. He's, he's stopped therapy. You know, then the story, I mean, how did he lose touch with the kids, with, with, with the children? He had a row with them. Um, he, he was going to be getting married again and his fiancée uh, turned out to be a, a con woman. Hmm. who stole money from him and the the whole thing was a, a disaster for him emotionally and what have you and for the children who were very excited about you know dad's getting remarried they were planning on having a family they were going to have a new little brother or sister and everything was going to be you know great and it, you know for divorced kids you know uh, of a certain age you know they're aged uh 10 at this point sort of you know between the ages of 9 and 10 when this relationship sort of begins it's a big deal, you know, dad's getting a new family and it felt like a nice, warm, fuzzy thing. True. Fast forward to the end of that relationship, you know, he turns up, she's, she's you know, stolen, you know, vast quantities of money. She returns the money, but she, she keeps, you know, um, you know, $100,000 wedding ring or $200,000 wedding ring, whatever, you know, all sorts of stuff like this. Right. Um, he's heartbroken, puts a strain on everybody. The kids are upset. They, they have arguments. As of course, families go through difficult times, they argue. Sure. And it was one of these arguments where he then says, okay, listen, they say, the kids say they want to go home. He says, fine, you can go home. The nanny drives them home via their, you know, lessons and the weekend stuff they do, but they, she takes them home early. And that's that. He then gets a, a phone call from the school that say, hey, listen, you know, the kids are upset. They don't want you coming to see them. They're very upset. We suggest we go into therapy because we, we dealt with these breaks all the time. And you just need, they need a bit of time. You need a bit of time. And then we'll bring it all together again. And, you know, we'll, we'll do some therapy here. That was the last he ever saw his kids. The therapy never happened. Um, he was in contact with them at this point because they were planning and going away on holiday together and they're sending him messages. One of them says, love you, daddy. Can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it, everything looks like it's going to be great. Suddenly their phones have gone. The numbers have changed. She can't contact them. They're cut off. And suddenly the mother is saying they don't want anything to do with you. And I'm not, they're very upset. I, I'm not going to force them to send you messages. And, you know, they've wanted to, they asked to change their phone numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So suddenly it's all change. And from then on, you know, he can't get to see them. The charity gets involved, there's therapy. The charity eventually writes a report that says, look, the mother is, doesn't believe that, you know, they want to be in your life and she's not going to force them. So we think that's the problem. You need to, mm -hmm. you know, get family therapy. He goes to court, goes for the family therapy, gets the mutually agreed solution because he's, you know, doesn't want to, you know, turn it into a, a fight. Sure. The mutually agreed solution completely fails. It then starts to turn into a fight. Now, at this point, he's getting desperate. 
he gets a uh, a top child psychiatrist appointed by the court to do an assessment. The court agrees, and he comes back and says, "Look, you know, there, there's there's something I wouldn't. It, it's it's a as he says, I would call it alienation in a hybrid sort of in, sorry in a plain English sense of the word. Mm. This is a case of alienation, but." By the same token, you know, if the mother doesn't want a father to have a relationship with the children, no solution ever really works. I would recommend assessments, etc. The children wouldn't be assessed with the father at this point. Um, so he still hasn't seen them. And, you know, the psychiatrist diagnoses the children at this point and says, look, they're, they're, they've got anxiety and depression. I recommend that they get, you know, therapy. No. So the children now are going into therapy father is, you know, gnashing his teeth and thinking, what can I do about my kids? At the same time, the school then starts saying, okay, uh, yeah, we're not going to share information with you other than their academic. We will give you a month, every month you can have an academic update. We won't tell you anything about the kids. Okay. Now at this point, there are serious safeguarding issues that come into play. One of the children is sexually abused by an online predator uh, through uh, devices that are being accessed in the mother's home and also at school. The school says there's been a few issues, but it's all fine. It's all under control. He says, what issues? And they say, well, there was someone on the internet who was behaving a bit weirdly and they've sent a few pictures to him, but it's all fine. You know, the sort of thing that would give you nightmares if you're a dad. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. He yeah. then says, no, no, you've got to give me all the information. And they say, oh no, the, the children won't consent for you to have their information. He says they're 12. Uh, they say it doesn't matter, they're 12, they're old enough to consent whether or not you can see their information. Now, by law, he has a right to see their academic records, and as eventually he gets has to get a court order to force the school to hand over the information about the fact there's been a serious uh, sexual abuse issue, and the police are involved. But he can't find any of this information out at the time, and no one will talk to him. The, he tries to get information from the children's GP about treatment, and again, there is, oh, no, no, they, they won't consent to share any information with you. And he said, and then, of course, and this is going back to the bias situation, as he's mm. made the case in court, how can it be that my children, are one of them is, you know, also depressed, anxious, has been self-harming, one of them has been abused, and they're happy for the mother to know all about it, but they're refusing to let the father know anything about it because they're terrified of him. Why? He hasn't seen them. He hasn't seen them for over a year. You know, by the end of it, the final assessments made uh, again by the court-appointed child psychiatrist says he doesn't understand how the children can be so frightened of a man they haven't seen for years. Mm. And they blame him for events that have occurred, which he wasn't even around for. And he said, you know, they don't, he doesn't understand how uh, they can be blaming the father for, uh, you know, discipline issues or various things that happened to them, uh, you know, living in the mother's house and they hadn't seen him for two years. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these flags and he can draw attention to them. In fact, they reported in, in, in those last few cases, he had a USB stick full of family photos and videos of them having fun on holiday. And one of the big things that had come out was, oh, he used to take us on these holidays and we hated it. We hated going on holiday to, you know, on, on Uncle Max's yacht in, you know, California, et cetera, et cetera. Right. He said, here's a film of them laughing and playing with Uncle Max. You know, the response to this was, we don't know who that man is. You know, we don't know who Uncle Max is. We, we can't remember him. And we hated that holiday. You know, the, the court 
never looked at the pictures. No one ever looked at the pictures. He gave these pictures to everyone and said, look at these holiday pictures, look at these holiday videos of us having a lovely time. This is the miserable children who are saying that, you know, they had this terrible life. Look at us having fun. We're, we're clearly having fun. And uh, it was the final court case where uh, the clerk said, sorry, uh, we couldn't open up any of the files on your USB stick. <laughs> Oh, and that that brings me to a question that that I always ponder. That was it. Is 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 the system lazy, or does it lack resources to to go after these things? Uh, is 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 that, is that those are the only two scenarios I can think of? I'm sure there are a thousand others, but is the system just lazy and doesn't want to look into these things in a, in a in a real way? Or do they just lack the resources and funding and things of that? Well, funding, I can't imagine, but but, but maybe. I'm just trying to, to figure out, like, what's the solution? And first, you have to figure out what the problem is. Well, there's a com- – I mean, in the UK, and I have to talk about, I suppose, specifically the UK family courts because that's where all this took place, yep. is the bottom line is, is that the system isn't fit for purpose. Uh, you know, Courts are very good, uh, you know, sorting out contract disputes over your neighbor's fence and your borderline stuff right. like that, right? They're great at dealing with, uh, you know, various other kinds of issues. But we see time and again, there are relationship and social structures that have fallen out of, you know, court purview. We talk about employment tribunals, right? We talk about rent tribunals. We talk about... Uh, conciliation between unions and employers uh, in the workplace, you know, time and HR tribunals, time and time again, uh, we've seen where you have complex things that don't fall into, here's a contract, is it in breach or not, you know, case law, that we have a different approach. And and the problem uh, clearly is this, is that, you know, you are left to the devices of people who who don't have a a recognized framework to assess uh, parental alienation. You're left to uh, the opinions of, you know, in this case, a retired judge who comes out and makes the most ludicrous judgment based on the fact the children have complained about excessive or in the sort of bottom quartile of their class. They weren't getting great marks. He was having them tutored. They went to a very expensive private school. And he was paying for a tutor on top uh, a few times a week to help them get through their their exams, uh, which they did with flying colours, which is great. But um, they said it was too much pressure, and he said, "I think you're you know you're a bit Victorian, you're a bit obsessed with education." He, in fairness, he takes it very seriously. Here's a man who left school at sixteen with with bare minimum qualifications, you know, son of you know hardworking working class parents, you know, in a, not in a particularly nice part of the world. And he rises to being, you know, uh, the very top of his game and, you know, a part of a very rare international set of highly successful, highly educated. He's got degrees and all kinds of stuff. Now he's educated himself. He takes it very seriously. So, you know, he said, for sure, you know, I, I sent my kids to a, a $100,000 a year school and I, I pay for them to have a tutor. That makes me a bad dad, apparently, in the eyes of the court, in the eyes of this judge who said, really, these kids should just be at home snuggling on the sofa, watching TV. And, you know, that's, there's no place for that when you're deciding the life of the kids. The court-appointed social workers, again, not laziness, but, you know, you have one person's opinion saying, I've interviewed the children, they're just normal kids with normal teenage problems. Now, they're not normal kids. They're the children of multimillionaires, right? That's by, if you, normal is to mean average, you know, that's not very average life circumstance. 
they're in a uh, facility. Uh, they've been admitted to a psychiatric sort of facility for anxiety and depression. Again, that puts them in a minority of of you know teenagers. Uh, one of them has been the victim of online sexual abuse and blackmail. Again, that puts you in a minority. So these aren't average kids with average problems, right? We were average kids with average problems. Okay, so yeah, sure. You know what? We got busted, you know, trying to, you know, smuggle booze, right, down to a party or, you know, maybe smoking some weed or something like this. Right. We weren't victims of crime and, and, and you know, admitted to psychiatric units you know, in between uh, mansions, right? So it's just there's so much opinion and without a framework to look at the facts. So the, the author wants to see a shift away from family courts to a tribunal system. Hmm. Where you know, and because the other thing is, of course, the courts will set a date six months down the line, a year down the line. We'll we'll come back in six months and we'll see what's happened. Right. And so the clock ticks, the clock ticks, and then eventually your children aren't children anymore. And if there is an issue, they're frightened of the bogeyman because you know they've got this idea in their head because uh, they've been scared by a manipulative. Uh, parental alienation abuser, then that just gets worse. The longer they're alone with them, the worse it gets. So this is something which becomes, you know, very time critical. Tribunals, generally speaking, deal with something in a short time frame. They have teeth and they deliver meaningful results at the end. That's why they're used for parole boards, you know, uh, as opposed to the parolee getting to go to court for four years to see whether or not he can get out of jail. You know, we take these things more seriously. So, so there should be something where you've got someone who is probably a divorced parent who's been trained to be a sort of mediator. Like mental health tribunals here in the UK, you normally have a former service user who is one of the people on the panel to, because they can relate to the issues that, sure. that are there. Uh, you should have someone who's a child expert, psychiatrist or a psychologist who works with children and can deliver uh, you know, insights there. You should also obviously have a judge there, but a judge that is trained to deal with this stuff, not someone who's come out of retirement. That doesn't right. seem yeah. you know, sensible at all. No. However, it's not just that. If you look at other countries around the world, this is the thing that we discovered as we sort of went through this. They approach these things totally differently. In Denmark, uh, Denmark's got a higher divorce rate than the UK, but it also has much higher happiness and well-being ratings when people are surveyed and much, much lower cases of acrimonious divorce and difficult uh, family relationships. And that's because before you can get divorced in Denmark, you have to go on a course, uh, which is all about managing your split up and you know the managing the split and custody issues in an effective way that minimizes harm to children and harm to one another emotionally. By you know, uh, so you go through mediation effectively before they give you a license to divorce. Hmm. Uh, similarly, in Norway, you get a certificate. You have to get a certificate of mediation to to show that you have been through a set of training, especially looking at custody issues. Um, And, you know, in much the same way that if you look at the history of child abuse and child poverty and malnutrition and neglect, when prenatal classes became a thing in the post-war period in most of, you know, the Western world and all around the globe, in fact, uh, prenatal classes trained parents to be better when the baby comes along pre-divorce classes you know are proven to make a big difference to the the well-being outcomes for children so i think you know we look at it and think okay there should be those sorts of things in in place the author as well is very passionate about the assumption of 50-50 custody mm. um which is it as or, or you know 
the the wrong default position because if you have one parent being an abuser then 50% of the custody of the kids is with an abuser and and that is you know a thorny one and we don't necessarily agree on that automatic assumption um but i'm here to represent his view which is you know it should be an automatic 50-50 assumption because from his point of view he wanted to parent he wanted to do all those things he was doing before for his kids because he doted on those children loved them very very much gave them everything so from his point of view every dad should be stepping up and taking on as much as he possibly can you know rather than there being a, a you know this burden on the mother which then often leads to uh issues with maintenance and abuse and what have you but but if you were to put those things together it would be much harder for one parent to influence the kids. And it, it can be one of the issues that came up in the court case. And we did this thing we call the hug headlock test. And that was, um, he bumped into his kids because he lived in the same town. He bumped into them coming out of the supermarket. And by this point, he'd managed to get the school to release the information uh, that they'd obviously one of them had been abused and the other one had psychiatric problems. He saw them, he gave them a big hug. He saw his kids. They've been through a terrible time. He gives them a hug. Everything's fine. You know, there's tears, what have you. It's the last time he saw them. That's it. Uh, and off they go. And he's left, you know, feeling like, okay, maybe there's some hope for us. The next day he gets a letter from the mother's solicitor saying that, you know, he physically assaulted them uh, at the supermarket. So, of course, he said, fine, you know what, well, let's get the CCTV footage. and We can see what it was. And then he gets another letter saying that, you know, there was excessive hugging. Uh, that he hadn't got them in a headlock. There was excessive hugging. But this twisting of it, this, which is the game that is played, because you know, this is a $2 billion global industry, right? So this is huge. This is, you know, family law. Messy divorces is a growth uh, industry. I know that sounds wrong. Oh, but, you you're know, right. That's how it is, right? So you've got this growth industry and, you know, you've got lawyers who play very, they play great games, you know? Mm. You see your kids and hug them, we're going to send you a thing saying you've attacked them. And, you know, of course, all these papers wind up with these keywords that stand out to some retired judge as well. You've been physically abusive. No, I haven't. Read the paperwork. They take that. You know, that's that's what you get. Um, and so this this problem, we did a, a test with a hug headlock test, and it started out with you said mean things about mum being one of those issues why we don't see you again because he'd said mean things about them. Um, in fairness, the mother had been involved with the breakup with his fiance. They had been in contact in secret. He was devastated to find out that, in fact, the con woman who left him heartbroken had left her, uh, had made arrangements with the mother um, to help her get out of the country, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this all came out later on. Um, uh, through various uh, sort of court interviews and papers, um, but so so he, he yeah he he got angry and said you know what your mum messed up my relationship you know mm. there you go um, that of course turns into you were trying to manipulate us to hate our mother which is something that he never did right but four years later three years later that's where it goes to and this happens again and again you know you uh you know um made us do all this schoolwork, and you involved yourselves and like to put us under too much pressure is where it ended it started out with uh you know you you took us uh you know on the private jet to the yacht as opposed to we wanted to go and see the lion king you know it, so so there is this thing and and of course the big thing being is that 
there were various personal issues that he'd gone through that were private. And at some point, according to the mother, the children broke into her office and read all the private documentation. So they were privy to aspects of his private life to do with a failed relationship and a child that he didn't have any contact with, um, uh, who he did support and to this day financially supports uh, and has a, a fine, you know, perfectly cordial relationship with the mother who wrote as a character witness on his behalf to say he had, you know, behaved very decently. He, Their relationship had broken up when she discovered she was pregnant and he was going through difficult times with his own kids. He, he couldn't take on that burden. He, he felt he wasn't ready for it. I think maybe he regrets that. I don't know. Um, he hasn't really confronted it because he's gone through this terrible trauma and he's, that's still waiting for him, you know? Yeah. But as he said, it was his business. It was private. He informed the ex-wife so that she knew it had happened because it felt like the right thing to do. And he asked that he be able to tell the children in his own time, because in time, obviously, they'd need to find out that, you know, they had an estranged sibling. Um but they found out about it, you know, uh, along with all the emails and the text messages and all the stuff that exchanged between him and his wife, all the arguments, everything else, and this. And then in the final uh, report, the thing that they mentioned, which, of course, they found out without him being around, uh, was, oh, he's got this estranged child, and therefore he's a monster. He's abandoned a baby, just like he abandoned us. And the sort of, you can see how the pieces of this narrative fit in, where... You know, and the psychiatrist, of course, who does the final report, says, well, he can't understand why they're terrified of him, apart from right. the fact that they are horrified that he's abandoned this baby. But of course, you know, he never got a chance to talk to them about it. Something like that is a very delicate issue. You need to be able to talk to it, you know, to children about it at the appropriate time. They shouldn't discover it when they're 12, and they shouldn't discover it, you know, uh, going through their mother's filing cabinet. You know, that... And that's a failure of safeguarding. It's a failure, as he said, like the abuse that took place in the mother's house over the internet. It's a failure of safeguarding on her part. It seems all these things happened to them in her home, on her watch, that they then blame him for. And now, you know, they don't want to see him. Although they do still uh, expect him to pay for uh, various aspects of their lifestyle, which they are still getting the mother to ask him to do, even though they are now adults, which, you know, gives you some idea of how commoditize this this relationship has become does, does he have any hope that this will that that there will be a relationship someday with 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 his children he's yeah he's you couldn't have i think uh achieved the heights that he's achieved and be a quitter you know mm. certainly not um he is absolutely well aware that he lost his kids and when he sees them again they will be grown-ups Mm. Uh, they'll be adults. And, you know, he is sort of holding firm to his values. You see, the interesting thing about all of this, and I think the thing that really, I, I think is one of the, the saddest or the most poignant parts of this, is here is someone who, despite being able to give them everything, didn't spoil his kids. Mm. You know, sure, you know what, he took them places and they enjoyed the lifestyle that he could provide. Sure. But, you know, he hasn't, He's wanted to set up trust funds. He wanted them to work for their money. He wants them to achieve for themselves. And this was the big point that led to the split with his wife, because she said, what does it matter? They're rich. They never really have to work. They can do what they like. Why do they have to do well at school? And he, he said, no, no, you've got to do well at school because it's for you. It's for personal development. It's, it's about growth. Yeah. And so they used to say, oh, he was mean and didn't buy as much for Christmas. And he said, you know what? When I was a kid, 
you know i got sod all for christmas you know uh we couldn't afford it and he said you know he can see what money does to people and he doesn't want that to happen to them um and he's at this situation where he said look i will very happily uh finance your uh, university education but you come and talk you got to come and talk to me you know about what you want to do with your life and all of this you know you have to have some kind of interaction with me rather than view me as this sort of person that only exists to write checks because that's not a healthy way to relate to people that's not a a healthy way to develop an independent life and their response to this was no thanks uh just send us the money and so he's i think heartbroken not just because of the childhood that was lost but because he's worried that his that that his children now are the kind of um people that he wanted them to be that their their values are out of whack that they've uh emerged from this thing you know broken with you know uh, a, a a sort of warped view of you know how the world and relationship should be which sadly is something that was predicted in the UCL study um, that ran over 13 years, 19,000 kids saying that, you know, the, the way it affects your life outcomes when you, you're split from parents in a messy way at a young age, it, it's all panned out. And I think that's the thing that's stuck with him worst is that he told everyone who would listen, you know, I believe I'm being alienated. Well, there's no proof of that. Fine. Well, you know, if my kids self-harm, if my kids get into inappropriate sexual situations, right? Well, both of those things happened within a, a year of him saying it. You know, if my kids have relationship difficulties, um, you know, if they have educational uh, problems, which again, they've had issues with education at school. In fact, it's funny that the court put a stop to the tutoring. As soon as that was over, the mother applied to him through her solicitor to start paying for tutoring again because their grades were bombing. So... <laughs> And and she hired the same, you know, so so basically, you know, the thing that the court in the end say, okay, fine, you're obsessed with education, you're like some sort of Victorian workhouse dad who's constantly making his kids work, like some sort of high pressure, hot house, right. et cetera, et cetera. We're putting a stop to that. They need to have a nice, you know, relaxed life like normal teenagers. Right. And then what happens is is that, you know, the mother then reimposes all the things that he said was good for them in the first place because they weren't doing very well at school and she she, you know, um, wanted that to happen but you you can imagine that from his point of view he said look they're going to have issues with their grades they got issues with their grades they're going to have uh problems with antisocial behavior there was one other time that he saw them uh on the high street um and there was an incident where they um they had been told by their mother that there was an injunction that he couldn't come within so many feet of them now this is nonsense never existed there was never any question of him not being a fit and proper parent. There was never any issues to do with his behavior or anything else. There's never been anything like that. He's a model citizen and a pillar of the community as well, actually with his charity work and things like this. I mean, you know, uh, but he sees them through the window of Starbucks and they start swearing and, you know, being highly abusive towards him and the person he's with. And there is an issue. He, he eventually, he, he, I said, what did you do? He said, well, I, I told the police. Uh, that they, you know, that this is how they were behaving. And the police invested. They dropped. He didn't make any charges. The police got them to write letters of apology, which is the last thing he got. Which was a letter of apology for this behaviour. And you know, they were they were reprimanded. And again, 
this is antisocial hooligan behavior where they nearly get kicked out for for kicking off in a public place in a very violent and aggressive way and again this was predicted so all the things he predicted happened and the the, the tough part about it is is that he predicted these things and every time there was an opportunity to try and get that information he was blocked uh, on data protection grounds gp said oh no sorry i can't give you that information they won't consent the school says, oh, they won't consent to give you the information. And so this, the, the, they're putting, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds in charge of their own information to a point whereby they can decide that their divorced father never needs to find out about them being abused in the mother's house. You know, now the thing is, as he said, this is where data protection becomes the enemy of safeguarding because he's trying to make choices about, yeah. you know, are his children safe or not? Right. And he can't find out if they're safe or not because he can't get this information. So he's left in this situation where I believe that one day this will resolve himself because everyone needs to go back to their roots at some point. They've got to find yourself. And I think certainly one of the children that perhaps was a bit more conflicted about it and did actually was referenced in the psychiatrist's analysis as being conflicted Mm. and feeling like they needed to show solidarity with their sibling Mm. and with their mother uh, but was clearly conflicted over the situation and didn't really understand why uh, this split had occurred. I, th- I think certainly, yeah, that, that that relationship could definitely restart. But it could, it might be twenty years. You know, it might be ten years. Who knows? So, but, uh, it seems like the solution is is a changing of the system. So, what is he? Um, how does he propose that happens? And is it? funding um, a, a, a particular organization or creating an organization? Is it funding uh, a, a certain politician? Is it pushing for changing the laws? But, you know, how? Like, what? what is the... I understand that he has some ideas for the solution. How do you get there? Well, yeah. I mean, he's involved um, in with, with various sort of groups, uh, charities that are campaigning in this space. Gotcha. Uh, and there are some very good ones. I mean, there's one charity in particular that we met uh, during the process of putting this together who, who specialise in making sure that schools give the right information to both parents and one parent doesn't get excluded because there's a lack of guidance at the mm. national level about what your rights are. So one angry parent will turn up and say, you can't share information with the other parent. And schools don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, right? They don't want to get in there and get, you know, into an argument between parents and get dragged into a messy divorce. So sometimes they will say, okay, fine, and they will minimize the amount of information they'll share mm. without there actually being any legal reason to do it at all. So there's a lack of guidance. More heavy. So he's working with organizations who are trying to clean up the sort of messy, fuzzy edges of the situation. The problem he keeps hitting and the problem that organizations that are pro-parental alienation hit is it's such a controversial topic. There are many uh, charities in the domestic abuse space, for example, who, who refuse to acknowledge it exists. Hmm. And there are a number of uh, sort of women's abuse charities who will say that actually it's used so much to abuse women that therefore, um, you know, they, they don't support it because they haven't found any real cases of it. Now, of course, if you go onto Facebook, to the parental alienation groups that you can find on there, there are tens of thousands of people who say it's happened to them. And the question we have to ask ourselves as decent people, and I have to ask myself as a happily married man who's, you know, the worst things that happened to me, or the saddest thing that happened to me was, you know, reading through uh, years and years of court paperwork telling this story, is how many of these cases can fall through the cracks and it's okay? You know, that's the problem. When is there going to be 
uh, acknowledgement that this is a possibility and it has to be investigated properly and analysed properly. Because, you know, we had uh, in the in the UK a couple of years ago, a high court judge resigned because, you know, uh, there was a woman who was uh, coercively controlled in a, you know, um, a very heavily uh, culturally, ethnically culturally influenced case. So uh, from his view, as, you know, a, a, a wealthy, uh, highly educated, you know, white Englishman, well, she could have just walked out. But of course, if you're being mentally controlled in a, a forced marriage situation, you can't just walk out. So you are a prisoner, you are being abused, even if you have all the freedoms, it doesn't mean that you feel mentally free, that you, you can break out. So this was overturned. He uh, was, you know, taken to task by um, the Law Society. He resigned and said, look, I'm out of my depth here. I haven't had adequate training, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, what's more, the courts aren't helping people like they should. So this is this has led to calls for reform of the family court, calls for reform of the abuse act. There is um, currently a redrafting of the Domestic Abuse uh, Act going through the UK Parliament. And within that, there is this huge route where parental alienation was going to be included. And then, uh, then various other lobbyists said, no, because it's part of coercive control, it should be in there and it shouldn't have its own category. And various other groups had come in and say, look, it's a way for abusive men to re-victimize uh, women who've been through difficult abusive splits. So it's post-separation abuse, as they call it, or post-divorce abuse. Um, and this is this hugely complex quagmire of people who you know, may all be motivated by the best of intentions. But the bottom line is, is there are parents who have done nothing wrong, who love their kids, who go through a hard time mentally or emotionally that leads to a split and they never see their kids again no matter and there's nothing they can do to change that and that is a, a you know leading to negative outcomes for them it's leading to disastrous outcomes for the kids in some cases and you know there is no real weight of movement there are proponents in parliament who are saying we have to include this in the legislation and then there's you know a chorus of voices that say oh no because of x y and z in the same way in the same way that you know i was taken to task by you know a few people who sort of test read the book because i had said that look you know it, the majority of domestic abuse is men or women and you know the majority of reported domestic abuses uh, I had a charity say, well, actually, no, we think it's roughly equal. And analysis says it could be equal men underreport. And the problem I have as a journalist is that, you know, I can't guess on yeah. underreported numbers. I can only go on facts that we can corroborate. Otherwise, yeah. we, we, we can't stand by the book. But I do accept those arguments sure. that maybe there is a much more complex situation about domestic abuse out there. And there are voices on all sides. Yeah. The bottom line, though, is, is until there is a, a material shift, and I think, you know, as the author thinks, it's too late for him. Right, this book is too late for him, and I think most poignantly, and I, I guess the way to sum it up for me was when I interviewed one of the witnesses, who was you know close, very close with the children, a close friend of his, who said, you know, if you sat down every time a couple said right with kids said we're going to split, right. if you sat down with the author of this book for half an hour and listened to him talk about the the unhealable wounds that this has left uh, in his life, then, you know, she said half of them would never get divorced and the other half would do everything they could to make sure that they didn't suffer what happened to him. And we always think it can't happen to us, mm -hmm. right? 
But, you know, the thing is, get their foot bitten off by a shark while they're swimming, right? But we still get travel insurance. And this divorce custody split situation, there is an extreme outcome that does happen that isn't studied. It's not uh, allowed for consistently by the courts. It is not set up in the right way across multiple agencies that deal with this stuff to look after the best interest of the children to protect parents from this. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You know, worse than losing your own life, losing your kids. Ask any parent. That's what they're going to say. So that's oh, yeah. that's his his goal. He's trying his very best. And hopefully things will change. But the problem still remains that until there is some acknowledgement that this can happen mm. at an official level, and there is a, an agreement about how you assess it, then you will still have people in the situation, they appear desperate, they're anxious, they're angry, the system seems to be failing them, and they're treated like, uh, okay, fine, you're, you're a pain in the ass, as opposed to, uh, you know, actually, you're the victim of abuse. Yeah, I, I mean, I can speak uh, from the divorce angle uh, with with children. It is incredibly painful. Uh, you, you said, uh, I, I think the, the, the comment was a wound that will never heal. Um, I don't think that's very far from the truth. I think you learn how to deal with it. Um, but but I don't have, I have my children in my life. I had them here this morning, you know, took them to school. Um, I can't imagine what this would be like to go through without them. Um, it, uh, it's hard enough. Um, and so uh, I, I, I want to thank you for doing this. I, I, I am not, um, like I said, I, I haven't experienced this, so I'm, I'm not an expert on this shit. I'm, I'm not sure I'm an expert on anything, but um, uh, this, this topic, I certainly am not. And it's the book that, that I've been able to dive in a little bit. Um, and I'm fascinated by it. I'm, I'm um, my eyes have been opened a little bit more uh, for sure. And um it's something that I, I don't know how these, these people that have to deal with it do. I, I just, mm. it's hard enough. Um, and so the, the last question I ask, and perhaps I'll ask this a little differently. I always ask everybody, what are some words of wisdom they would impart to a man who's about to begin his divorce process? And I think I'll maybe change this question a little bit and ask you, um, what words of wisdom would you impart to a man who's going through this? and is going through some parental alienation. Well, the the I, I'm going to refer to the sort of aggregate wisdom of the the, the child um, family court lawyers I spoke to, who all agreed on one key point, which is the situation you're in when you enter the court is the situation you're probably going to come out with at the other end of it. You know, don't expect anything to change. Uh, don't expect anything to make sense and don't expect there to be a fair audit of your situation because that's not, you know, what's what's happening here. So what's happening is, you know, uh, a judge will sit there and take the advice of uh, everyone else on aggregate and decide whether or not, unless there's something really obvious that they can fix, that they will try and uh, just maintain the status quo. So the longer you can stay out of court, the more you can come to uh, an agreement, the better. And as one of the lawyers uh, I interviewed said, you know what, you you would be better off to choke on it and say, fine, I'll accept whatever you give me to maintain contact with my kids. Because the flip side is you lose contact with your kids. And that is that is shocking 
there is not much hope in that glass, you know, and that is very, very, that's not even half empty, is it? That's like, you know, there's a few dregs in the bottom of that glass. But he said, you know, this is, this is the thing. He said, you know, don't expect it to make sense. You'll go in there with a rock solid case. And, you know, here is someone who went in there with a legal team that is, you know, beyond reproach and with deep, deep pockets that could see him get right the way through. Here's someone who, you know, does not lose court cases. And in in the eyes of the family court, you know, they just he had a he had, he exited the court with the same judgment he went in. We're not going to force your kids to see you there, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it took you know three years, and you know uh, most people's life savings to to get back to square one. So avoiding it, that's the best advice. Avoid it in the first place. Do what you got to do. Put up with what you got to put up with. And as, as one of these lawyers said, you know, the thing is, the psychological manipulation of a child, does it's not some Manchurian candidate situation here. We're talking about kids. You know, you're talking about a nine-year-old. So what do you do to a nine-year-old? They come back from, you know, a weekend with daddy and say, hey, I had a great time. And what do you do? You start to cry and say, oh, so you prefer your father to me. That's all you got to do. You know, you do that enough when they're nine and when they're 10, they're going to come back and say they had a bad time. You know, when you say, oh, yeah, dad and I did this and it was fun. You know, all you've got to do is say, oh, really? And, you know, not disguise your emotions if you're jealous, if you're angry. And it works both ways. I mean, there are many mothers who have come forward, you know, during the course of writing this book who actually, I mean, six of whom actually, you know, um, have... Uh, sort of, you know, come out publicly and written letters of complaint about why aren't you including this? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, it's hard. It's hard for people to talk about. But I come back always to the same thing, which is if you can stop, if you can stay out of court for as long as possible, that's your best possible outcome. Because the thing that is least likely to happen is the children will be moved from one home to another. You know, mm. there are there are various treatments i mean therapies for this um in the u.s where that's absolutely right you will have a big move for a child from one home to the other over a period and then restarting a family therapy and it can be addressed but it's a huge trauma for the child to go through and most of us wouldn't want to do that to our kids either and i think that's that's been the, the terrible thing is that you know the author here was well aware that his kids were under strain but he said you know what what's the alternative that he just gives up and sees them fall apart mm. or does he fight to see them and you know again uh looking back at it i think uh the longer it, 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 we decided that you know the problem was he was badly advised in the first place take a break say to your kids we'll take a break right. we'll cool off and we'll go into therapy and then everything will be fine if he'd never taken that break yeah. if he had just said fine you go home this weekend i'll see you next time you know, and carried on as normal, things might have worked themselves out. I mean, it's honestly, I think given the history with the ex-wife and the things that happened all on her watch Mm. that turned the children against him, I think it's unlikely. I think this was, you know, uh, a revenge, a passive-aggressive sort of acting out of feelings of, you know, anger towards the husband. Yeah, I think... That's not something that is unusual. Um, I think probably goes both ways in all divorces at some point. You know, I certainly my friends who got divorced, I know. Sometimes though, there is an extreme case where it goes too far. In the same way, sometimes we all lose our temper sometimes. You know what? Sometimes we lose our temper and you know, we beat someone to death with the golf club. You know, it's rare. 
but it's just the other end of that spectrum of you know getting into a bus up over parking your golf cart right yeah. so this is the same thing the passive aggressive acting out in a difficult divorce in some cases goes to an extreme which has devastating consequences Sadly, uh, I, I see it. I see it daily. Uh, I, I can uh, I can con- uh, confirm what you're saying. Uh, what's the best way for people to find the book, to find info uh, about um, parental alienation, perhaps, uh, and and yourself? How, how can people find you and 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 purchase the book? Yeah, the book is actually the, the book's about. If you just Google it, uh, "The Invisible Parent" um, uh, by Anonymous with Andrew Keith Walker then yeah it's in most good online bookstores and gotcha. uh you can order a, a copy there and um also if you contact uh literally pr uh and i'll i'll fire you their details over then you know they can you know hook you up if you're interested in, in finding out more about it as for um getting support and help you know there are a lot of organizations out there that are switching on to this issue and you know it's it's about finding one locally that can uh you know uh you can connect with and that can you know contact you is is going to be probably your your best starting point mostly you're going to find it's charities and child focused charities um that are uh, the the ones that are most aware of this issue because as with so many things it's coming from the community first and it's very slow to see the adoption of this sort of grassroots movement by um, the uh, sort of more sort of official state channels. Uh, but it, it is it is coming and it is going to change. I think there will be a time where we turn around and say, actually, do you remember when people said parental alienation mm-hmm. didn't exist right. in the same way that they said there wasn't a gender bias in the right. workplace or there wasn't a right. racial bias in policing, whatever it might be, we're yeah. seeing these norms turned on their heads, but when people actually talk about their life and their, their lived yeah. experience. And I think parental, parent, the parentally alienated parents out there are starting to do that now and feel more confident about doing it without being labeled as a wrong. And I, I suppose actually that would be the thing I would say most of all is that I think one of the, the, the thing that really brought a lump to my throat was when I was talking to the author about it and he said, you know, I played golf the other day with someone who was a business contact. I've known them for 20 years. You know, we go back a long way, et cetera, et cetera. We're very, very close. And he said, we're there. He goes, and I'm about to strike the ball. And um, he says to me, so, okay, did you, did you do something? And he said, what do you mean? He goes, well, did they catch you uh, interfering with your kids? And he said that was the end of their friendship. That was it. It was over. He said, because how could I play golf with someone who was willing to play golf with a pedophile? Uh, a. And B, he said the horror that someone who he was a close friend with could turn around and actually even ask him that question. What did you do? Right. And this is the thing that the shame that is layered onto parents who say, my ex has taken my kids and won't let me see them, the immediate thing they're hit with is, what did you do? And it's the narrative of victim shaming that is so familiar in so many other walks of life. And we don't, you know, we're not talking about any of that. I'm not an expert in any of those things, but I can say right. for sure that every alienated parent faces the same, you know, awful accusations uh, when they say, my kids don't ever want to see me again, because generally no one can believe that this would happen. But, you know, it, it does. Yeah, sadly. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you uh, for, for writing the book uh, with with Mr. Anonymous. Uh, please pass along my thanks to him. Um, I will. And, and uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, 
we, we will stay in touch and, and probably do it again. I'd love to do a follow-up at some point in the future. Absolutely. Misu, thank you very much for having me. And, and also I've been listening to the show and I think it's a very, it's a very brave uh, project. And, you know, you're, you. You, you're doing in a way what the author of this book has done, right? Is you're, you're bearing your soul a bit here for the world, you know, to try and connect with other people who are going through the same thing. And so I, well, having never been through anything like that, and I hope I never do, I'm just going to say I really respect you for that, man. And congratulations on a, a really worthwhile show. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching and or listening. Thank you to Nick Coyle and Lifer for allowing me to use their song, Born Again, which you're hearing now and at the intro to the podcast. Thank you to Justin Dillahanty and all of my brothers at The Alpha Code. Please visit the website, risingphoenixpodcast.com to connect with me and other like-minded men who are looking to thrive and grow after their divorce. And remember to surround yourself with people who add value to your life, who challenge you to be greater than you were yesterday, who sprinkle magic into your existence like you do to theirs. Life is not meant to be done alone. Find your tribe. Take care.